Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And this show, like so many things, would not exist without the internet. We wouldn't be friends without the internet. Fair enough. I mean, we would have had to, I guess we would would just uh, drive to Iowa and do every show, sort of meet somewhere in between these two cities that we live in. That would be convenient and easy and pleasant. Uh, Anyway, I, so I'm grateful for that. That's a a benefit of the internet. But as I, I feel like I was going to say, as my father would say, my father didn't say this. As as we say, the the internet giveth Sugi and the internet, the internet, the internet taketh away. (laughs) The internet making me lisp. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what is the internet taking away? Well, all right. Sanity, for one thing. Obviously, my speech patterns are another thing. But what about Facebook? We've lately been getting a tremendous amount of news because of a major leak from a whistleblower who we'll be talking about, who copied a bunch of internal documents and gave them to lawmakers, regulators, and reporters. She, this whistleblower, Francis Haugen, testified before Congress last month. And the upshot is, big surprise, Facebook has been prioritizing profits over safety from the negative effects of Instagram on kids to fanning ethnic and political tensions around the world. So, and thus giving us episodes about many things we've already talked about on this show. Uh, So on some level, it's jeopardizing our basic safety. Tell me about it. I mean, I remember how anti-Muslim violence in Sri Lanka in 2018 was connected to Facebook and Anyway, there's now, there I think, more and more whistleblowers. Um, another whistleblower recently went, I think, to the Washington Post. And after the most recent revelations, there was a, a protest logout between November 10th through 13th, which, full disclosure, I did not participate in, maybe should have. Um, and I do have several friends who are shutting down their accounts. It seems like a thing that's happening more and more. You know, all I have to say is, like, if they shut down their Facebook account but then are still active on Instagram, I'm not buying it. <laughs> Tough crowd. Okay. <laughs> And, or maybe they'll just be part of Meta, which is the new, or, or Meta, that's the, that's the new name for Facebook, which uh, also recently just was announced by Mark Zuckerberg. That's right. That's what Facebook is renaming itself to distract from all of the bad news. But we cannot be distracted. And later in this episode, we'll be talking to Cecilia Kong about her new book, An Ugly Truth, Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination, which she co-authored with her fellow New York Times reporter, Shira Frankel. But first, we're honored to talk to Pamela Paul about her new book, 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. Pamela is the editor of the New York Times Book Review and oversees books coverage at the New York Times. She's the author of seven previous books, 
and she most recently came on her show to talk about one of them called My Life with Bob, so you can check out that earlier episode. She's also a fellow podcaster and hosts the Inside the New York Times Book Review weekly. Pamela, such a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me again. Uh, we spent a lot of time on the Fiction Nonfiction podcast talking about the political and sociological costs of large social media networks like Facebook. And we've done episodes on the role Facebook played in the violence in Myanmar, for instance. And that now Facebook's not exactly the Internet, but it's uh, certainly a, a large part of the Internet. And Sugi, as Sugi mentioned, will be talking with two of your colleagues about their reporting on the company. But we are writers, and this podcast has an aesthetic side as well as a political one. And your book seems to be at least partly about the aesthetics of internet life compared to pre-internet life. Is that fair to say? Well, some of it is certainly aesthetic, and many of those um, aesthetic things are physical objects, things like Rolodexes, things like printed invitations. Um, Some of it good, like those things are nice, but some of it maybe not as fun, like paperwork. But I would say that one of the differences between this and, say, the kind of larger conversations that many of us have been having about the impact of social media and the Internet is that I try to bring things down to the everyday. So we all know that the Internet has implications for things like elections and um, the workplace and corruption and um you know, things like uh, the news and truth. But we also know and feel on a visceral level that the internet and all of its various parts, social media and otherwise, affects our daily life from the moment we wake up in the morning, which might now be to an iPhone alarm that launches us directly into some kind of audio experience. To As the it moment is for we... me, and I hit that snooze button all the time. And my wife <laughs> and I have to have separate alarm sounds so that we know whose phone is alarming at different times. Right, right. And then, and that changes, frankly, also the way you sleep, right? And your inability to go to sleep at night because you're like, let me just check that one last thing. Like, let, let me see if there's an update here, if that newsletter has arrived, if that person has emailed me back, if anyone liked the photo I posted on Instagram or whatever it might be. And so that's kind of the internet that I wanted to look at in this book and, and, and to look not forward, but maybe back to like, what did we use before we use the iPhone to wake up? And what did we do before we checked, you know, our Twitter feed uh, right before bedtime, which is not relaxing. As a person who slept with my cell phone under my pillow last night, this is all resonating in a painful way. Why did way. you do that? One well, thing that's I know you did <laughs> it's not. Just like, Why? It's like a, I did. I mean, it's like a strange. It's like attached to the charger, and then it's just easy to anyway. It's it's Wait like a the minute. news. No, no. Are you listening <laughs> to something? I listen. I listen to podcasts until I fall asleep with earbuds in. So I mean, I understand. No, okay. I'm not listening to anything. It's just like it's like the it's like my adult version of a stuffy. I don't okay. know. Like, and that I think also right. Troubling. I also used to be. I also, like you, Whitney, used to be a journalist. And then I think I had this, like, very panicked feeling that I needed to have my phone kind of, like, right at hand. You need to sleep with uh, your phone, case. is what you're saying. I, you sleep with your phone. I, I, I don't. I'm shaking I, yeah. my head. <laughs> anyway, one thing that's so interesting to me, Pamela, about this approach that you're that you're taking is that you're comparing the aesthetics of two different mediums and the way that they affect each other. And, and I think this is a little bit like talking about the way that photography changed, say, painting. I think like once realistic images were easily available and anyone with a camera could make them, painting no longer had to perform that function of just representing the world. It could kind of go beyond that. And painting invented new forms like cubism or abstract expressionism. And do you think that real life um, or IRL, as um, the cool people call it, 
is itself changing to accommodate and react to the existence of the internet? Yes. Yes. I think that actually I was going to say that that's a very good analogy. And the comparison I would make in terms of what I'm trying to write about in this book is how is like the human body and the human mind adjusting to the internet, right? Because the changes that have come about have been so profound and it's like our bodies and our brains are still trying to catch up. Like sleeping with one's phone and with the presence essentially, no, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna (laughs) let go of that yet, but like, you know, with the presence of essentially millions of human beings, their thoughts and their like emotions and their reactions right next to your head is a new thing for humans. Like we, most of us maybe sleep alone or with one other person some people more that's okay but in general like we don't in the past you know years of of evolution human evolution we have not slept with that many people in our in our bed essentially like when you were a teenager for example and remember like if you were super lucky and you had that kind of parent and you had a phone in your room right maybe you talked to your friend on the phone your best friend right see you weren't one of those kids but but some kids were and um and you would talk to your friend at, at night but if you had said to your mom like can i have um, 75 people from school sleep over tonight, they would, you know, your mother would have said no, your father would have said that's ridiculous. And yet, that's essentially what teenagers are going to sleep with every night. They're going to sleep with like their entire social circle in the room. You don't need to have anyone sleep over. And I think that we haven't, as human beings, completely caught up with that notion, right? Like, we don't even think about it. When, when a child asks a parent, you know, or a teenager asks a parent, kids get phones young these days, can I keep my phone in my room? It's The reaction is very different from like, hey, can I sleep over with my entire social circle and their social circle and their social circle in my room? But in essence, that's what it is. It's like we haven't fully grappled with that reality. Yeah, I mean, I do have a 16-year-old and the notifications on his phone are sounding all the time. You know, it's like a perpetual, it's like part of the noise of him. You know, it's the is the text notification or the Snapchat notification. You know, it's um, interesting. Right, in yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, one of the another analogy is in an earlier book that I wrote, Parenting Inc., that kind of looked at the business of child rearing and the way in which we're sold on all of these services and goods to just like raise kids. I looked into Baby Einstein, um, the video series, to use like a, a word that's entirely obsolete, um, and and you know that that ship has sailed. There was a lot of investigation into that company um, after that, but. Um, why those videos worked so well. And if you weren't around then, they were these videos that like played classical music, you know, like a sort of Tinkerbell version of classical music songs while showing like a ceaseless and ceaselessly animated parade of of sounds and lights at a baby. And people would say, my baby can't look away. Um, He's totally wrapped by this video. And the reason is because the baby's brain is forced to attention by the constant change. It's like the change would happen every second, seven seconds. And so at the moment the baby wanted to look away, the action on the screen would force the baby's brain back. It was essentially like, you know, Clockwork Orange, where they, they you know, open, hold Alex's eyelids open mechanically and force him to stare at images. And that's what those notifications are like for your 16-year-old and, quite frankly, for all of us. Like, our brains are like, oh, yay, someone has reached out. Oh, and again, and again, and again, and again. And we're not used to that. 
Uh, I agree. I mean, we're going to talk in the second half of the show about one of the you know, one of the things that we've learned now that Facebook did was you know amplify videos that got negative reactions rather than positive ones, and that's another way of trying to drive engagement. In your other life, you are the editor of the New York Times Book Review, as we noted, and a list of lost in your list in the book of things lost to the internet has many literary elements. You mentioned the period, for instance, uh, the school library, the paper, magazines. And just going back to Sugi's question about photography, about how photography influenced painting, I wonder if as an editor and reviewer, you have noticed the ways that the internet has influenced novels or short stories. I'm not thinking so much about the way novels reference Twitter or Facebook, which they mm-hmm. do, but how or if novels might be changing to compete with the internet and the changes that you describe in the book. It's interesting. I think a lot of that depends on the age of the reader. I don't think that we're necessarily seeing like a full answer to that question yet. But I will say that when you talk to writers of young adult literature, for example, and they're obviously in the thick of it with a, um, a digital native reading audience, they basically say you have to hook the reader in by the second page. You know, like no one is going to have any patience with the sort of David Foster Wallace technique of trying to alienate your reader for the first 100 pages and kind of hope that like those who persist and make it through will be rewarded um, on page 101. Um, And so I do think that there is a lot competing for people's attention and that that may force writers into trying to get that attention. On the other hand, and and I don't like to be 100% negative um, and pessimistic (laughs) about everything. Uh, I I can veer pretty close. Um, On the other hand, you know, some of that's good. Like, you know, some books are boring. Um, But also, I do think that reading novels, in-depth narratives can be a kind of antidote to the internet. And I thought it was really interesting during the pandemic when we were all forced into essentially an entirely online life, or many of us were, many of us who were, you know, fortunate enough to uh, be able to to quarantine um, during the most dangerous period. And when life got reduced to a screen, what happened to books? Sales shot up. And I think it's because being thoroughly immersed in an online life made people yearn for some kind of departure, some kind of escape from the kind of, you know, 2D screen that we're glued to many of us all day long. So do you remember Sean, Sean McDonald, who's my editor at, at For Our Stress and Giroux, talked a little bit about the the sales during the pandemic and how, how yeah. strong they were? I think it's so interesting. Also, there is a whole set of kids who kind of seem to not love, right? They think of Facebook, for example, as something for olds. Oh, Facebook is, Facebook is so uncool. It's interesting because, you know, many people of, of our generation, we think like, how is Facebook doing so well when young people don't want anything to do with it, but they're not thinking globally because, of course, in many countries um, like India, for example, um, the entire population, including young people, are on Facebook. So that's really like a, a very American perspective, um, to think that young people aren't using it. Right. I mean, all of all of my relatives overseas, like probably one of the reasons I'm having such a difficult time leaving it is because it's a major way for me to contact my overseas relatives. I also have noticed that um, the children and young people that I know, they do, I, I guess I sort of preemptively worried that they wouldn't read as much and they read just as much and they forget to charge their phones. They, um, it's so soothing. <laughs> 
it is actually I find it really comforting I'm like oh you guys are such throwbacks I love it uh, like well, if, I, and pa- go ahead <laughs> oh just I, I mean if, if I if we you know I have a rotary phone an old school rotary phone in my house attached to the wall and um, one of my stepkids likes to go to the phone and have long conversations with herself and it's so heartening that's really sweet I was just going to say Pamela I've heard you talk about this because your your book how to raise a reader is sort of about this stuff I remember when you this was pre-pandemic I think you were on tour for it and I saw you talk about that book in Kansas City. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, with all of these things they, that I sort of uh, recorded in this book, these lost things, many of them are lost um, permanently, but but really not all of them. And if they are lost, they are not, it, it's not that we can't revive them. We can, we can recuperate them. Um, and I think that you're seeing that as uh, you mentioned with young people kind of yearning for things like vinyl or for um, paperback books, things that are now kind of relics of a previous, uh, you know, pre-internet era. I wanted to, when writing about these things, not only note that you can go back. These things are choices. The internet is largely products and services that are being sold to us, and we can choose not to. Um, most of us don't. Um, but we can be selective about the things we choose. And we can also see that some of these things you know, are multifaceted. They're all, it's not all negative. So as you said, like reading has not gone away. True. However, a lot of reading among boys um, has declined, and that, I think, is in part tied to the Internet and to gaming and to all of the things that the Internet offers for many boy readers, kids who are cerebral and who might have looked for, you know, books that are kind of fact-finding books, books that are highly visual, comic books, um, there's a lot online that taps into the needs and interests for that kind of previously bookish boy. Well, we're to- talking so much about the the lost things that um, you have in your book. I would love to have you read a passage from the book to us and our, so that our listeners can get a the sense of what is past and maybe reclaimable. Okay. This is chapter 68, The Philofax. On July 10th, 2019, something happened that had not once happened in all my years as a paper-bound person. I lost my personal organizer, which in my case is a Levenger Circa notebook I've settled on after much experimentation over the years with assorted filofaxes and day runners. I knew exactly where and how I lost it, shuffling it from one tote to another alongside its supplementary companion, a Moleskine notebook in which I write down my daily tasks. It was there and then it was gone. And with that went my entire agenda, everything I had to do that day, all my meetings, a lunch, an after work drink. I remembered most of it because I'd given it a good once over as I did every morning before we parted ways. The next day, however, was a near blank. The following week, a void. I'd had lunches planned almost daily. I just didn't know with whom or where. There were meetings I was meant to be in, some of which I'd convened myself. One of my kids was coming home from camp, I vaguely recalled, on which day was anyone's guess. With a gulp, I pictured the two unsent letters to two of my kids I'd tucked into one of the plastic pockets, along with my son's eyeglass prescription, notes from several important conversations, a few keepsakes. All of it now lost. This sorry situation had, of course, a solution, one that has been embraced by many. Convert to Google Calendar. Outlook, or any number of other electronic personal information management systems as they are known to the trade. 
You can instantly update. You can share your shopping list with your partner. You can sync and seamlessly integrate personal and professional agendas. Everyone knows where you are and where you will be, when you're available and when you're not. In other words, your personal agenda is no longer strictly personal. I, for one, would rather live a life of a thousand missed appointments. Only during the coronavirus pandemic did I find myself sending Google invites of necessity, attending prearranged Zooms. All was nonetheless double entered into my companion Levenger, my new one. Of course, I went and bought another one online right away. Few retail shops sell such items anymore. In 2020, the mega chain Papyrus went bankrupt. Mom and pop stationery stores have similarly shuttered. Filofax's pristine jewel box shops tucked into fancy retail stretches like the Rue des Frambourgeois in Paris have closed, as have its perches in high-end department stores like Saks Fifth Avenue. So, Whitney, I don't know if you were the kind of person who, like, went to stationery stores regularly. Sugi, maybe you were. But, like, for me, the stationery store was a magic palace of possibility. I mean, for anyone who was, like, at all writerly or or had, like, artistic aspirations or pretensions, it's like you went into a good stationery store and it was full of pens and stickers and notebooks and calendars and just things that you wanted all of those objects cards and like and personalized stationery like remember getting your own personal stationery was such a step or picking out the invitations to your birthday party and like deciding like what would the you know what the RSVP cards would be and and just all of that it's 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 um it's gone <laughs> or it's it's much less that's definitely true I remember there was a stationery store really near my house where I grew up, and I remember going there and getting stationery when I went to college because that was the thing you were supposed to do was have like stationery to go to college to write notes home back to your parents, or at least that was the way I was taught. And I still have a box of stationery here. I still use it occasionally, uh, but the stores are gone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like, um, yeah, I have such fondness for there was a place here where I used to take the bus before the pandemic, and it was right in front of the paper source. And so I would spend all of the time until like the minute before the bus came looking at paper goods. And then in college, I would go to the bobsled in Harvard Square, essentially as a mental health exercise. Like every time I was angry, I would buy a pen. Right. It's and soothing. <laughs> it's so soothing. My- it's so soothing. You know, yeah, like the first decalage paper I ever had was stationery. The, um, the the stationery store in my town was called Commuter Stationery, and it was right next to the train station because, like, who knew what kind of writing utensil you would need that day, you know, before you boarded your, your train. That's so perfect. I used to use – I never used a file of facts, but my parents were real estate agents, so they would put out a printed calendar every year with their, like, pictures on it, and I would just get one because they were free, and that was what I would – I would write everything into the little square of each day that I was supposed to do. Yeah. You know, and then things like, like Kinko's, you know, remember? Oh, Kinko's, Kinko's. And, like, Kinko's, dittos, photocopies, like, all of that paper, paper, paper stuff that we no longer have to contend with. You also have a chapter on filing cabinets, which I also have here in my office, a gigantic one, which, you know, they're going extinct. Um, I was trying to think of another historical period where so many seemingly indispensable objects simply disappeared from everyday use. The only thing I could come up with was the transition from horses and buggies to cars. You know, suddenly when every house needed a bridle, that suddenly didn't happen anymore. And every house needed a spare tire or something like that or keys. Do you have any other periods like that? No, you know, I think you're right. And it's funny. um, And I think, you know, here I'm clearly playing into what I assume 
people's stereotype of me might be, but one of the objects in my home is this enormous um, like hunk of furniture, and I don't know what to call it other than it is a storage unit for horse and carriage items that used to be in horse and, and, and buggy shops, like a carriage shop and hardware stores across the country. Mine is from early 19th century, and it's got like hundreds of drawers that are labeled like ties and tires and poles and, and, and things like that that used to be um, a, a regular, it was like the pre-file cabinet you know, of, of the horse and buggy era. It's in my house. I can tell you it is used for nothing. It is it is useless, truly. But see, even that seems like a thing that the internet. I just want to blame the internet for this. But like, right? Does everything have to have utility? Does it? Does everything have to be so transactional? Can't you just have a beautiful object in your house and love it? I mean, I just love the idea. Like, I like imagining. I'm imagining kind of. I don't know. Like one of those library. Um, oh my gosh, I'm not going to remember. Like the like the card. The card, the card catalog. Yes, right? I have like a card I, catalog also. <laughs> yeah, so I'm just... to put, like, batteries. Exactly. And that's and it's so great. I'm sort of imagining, like, the, the card catalog of saddles or, or something like that. And just, I don't know, like, that's the other thing about... The internet makes it seem like for every action, there has to be a reaction. Like, everything has to be useful. Like, objects aren't the only losses that you're cataloging here. A lot of the chapters describe things that are, I don't know exactly what the term would be, like, social or cultural, like, kind of like the mm-hmm. uselessness I'm, I'm talking about here. Like, you know, I really liked your chapters on the benefits of doing things less efficiently, which I think I spent so much of my life trying to be more efficient, and now I'm trying to train myself out of it. And yeah. there's a whole group of things in the book that are kind of like that. You start with a chapter on the value of boredom and you've got being in the moment and the meet cute and benign neglect uh, and getting lost and wondering about the weather. And so many of these things are kind of things I connect with leisure. And I wonder if do you think that inefficiency is a good thing? I think it can be. I mean, you know, and, and to, to your point, like some of the chapters are kind of I try to do it a little bit of both. Like it's a physical object, but then it's also an idea. So, for example, with the Rolodex, right? We all know what a Rolodex, or we all know. I don't know. Some people might not know what a Rolodex was. It was and an object that usually was on like a round, spinny thing, although there was long um, rectangular ones that you could have. And um, and you put people's business cards, also nearly extinct, on these Rolodexes. And I still have mine. It exists. I haven't looked at it. I haven't flipped through it. I'm sure half the people in it are dead. But I keep it. But the bigger idea is this notion that like it used to be really important and really like a power marker to have like a really stuffed Rolodex or two on your desk. If you went into a meeting with someone and you faced those Rolodex, you'd be like, wow, that person knows everyone. And at that time, it was, you know, a a sort of rule of thumb, like you are who you know. Now we know everyone. Like we know everyone. We know people we don't want to know. We know people that we knew in preschool. And like in a normal world, in a non-internet world, I would say, um, we would have like not been in touch with those people in preschool unless we had a really good reason to want to stay in touch with them. But now we're all connected to them. You know, we're all six degrees of seven of Kevin Bacon. And it's just a completely new way of living. Um, To get back to your point about productivity, I think that there is something to inefficiency that's kind of alluring because the process of doing things is what makes the completion of the process more rewarding, right? Like if it's too easy, you don't really feel like you've accomplished anything. I'll give you one example, which is um, 
grocery stores. So one of my favorite jobs during high school was working at a supermarket. I really loved being a, a checkout uh, person at the supermarket. I just... It, it, it's actually quite an interesting window into human nature. Like when you look at, like, say, three things that someone is buying at 11 p.m., you know, and it's like a bar of soap, um, a, a head of broccoli and, um, you know, a, a jar of mustard. And you wonder, like, what was the impulse item? Like, what did you come rushing to the grocery store at this hour to buy? But one of the challenges of that job was memorizing all of the vegetable codes. Um, there were four <laughs> digit codes and, 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 and produce generally, you know, and, um, and, you know, so like there, there weren't a lot of challenges, but that was one. And I felt really good, you know, about like knowing the broccoli Rob, you know, versus the broccoli and, and um, <laughs> there wasn't really too much organic produce, but, but now it's all like, it's all in the computer, you know, and there's like a million buttons and they just like pop the little button and, and all of that uh, process is gone. And so that's just a tiny example. But I then think of things like roof thatching, you know, and and I do think that the popularity of things like gardening is because people do just kind of long to get their hands in the dirt and get messy and actually work a little towards something that isn't um, immediate gratification. Again, it's like when I talk about human nature not quite being caught up to the internet, I do think that we kind of have a craving as much as we've become habituated to instant gratification because of the internet. And like, I'm as bad as anyone. Like if a page takes like longer than a microsecond to, to, to load, I'm like, screw this, you know, and I just switch windows or like wait in another tab. I think as much as we like that and are habituated to it, I think that we also long for the opposite. I mean, surprise and synchronicity is one of those things that if you know where everyone is at all times, then you can't really achieve that as much. Like, I remember when it was free, even cell phones, right, where you might, if you ran into a friend or happened to see them while walking through the town, it was great. And then you could something would happen or there's a there's an essay by there's a little uh, talk of the town piece by John Updike that he wrote about a sudden spring rain in Midtown New York around the New Yorker building and how everyone freaked out and reacted and all this sort of movement happened. But of course, today, everyone would know that it was about to rain or was going right. to rain. No, now the only moment of surprise there is if it isn't, if your phone doesn't agree. And then you're like, <laughs> what is going on? Like, what's wrong with my phone? Like, or what's wrong with the weather? Like, it just doesn't, um, we're so used to knowing. And I, I do find it incredibly annoying and frustrating when um, the weather, you know, contradicts what's on my phone. I'm like, this is not possible. Like, it, it doesn't say anything about a chance of rain here. One of my, the serendipity things, too, that I miss is, is, is chapter 79, figuring out who that actor is. I do not like phones to be in the room when I watch movies with my family because, like, where's the joy in knowing, you know, that it, it, it's Dan Hedaya if, if, if you just, like, Googled it? You know, that's just not an IMDb it or Wikipedia it. And then, you know, I, I, I like to figure out, like, how and where I know all those, you know, extras in, in Law and & Order or old, you know, episodes of The Good Wife. I don't need to, I don't want to know. I want to I figure it out. I'm just thinking about, um, so people today are taller, I think, by and large, than they used to be. And if you kind of go to, like, old houses in New England, you kind of hit your head on the doorways and are like, how tall were these people? And you you kind of look back at history and you think, but that, you know, that's not a thing that you think about when you think about that history. I wonder when people are going to, like, how are our brains being rewired by 
not being required to memorize large amounts of information. And I think about all of the things I actually weirdly gained from that, like Mm -hmm. my capacity to just remember things. Phone numbers. Yeah, phone numbers. I mean, I still remember, like my my friends always are sort of like, why do you still remember our phone numbers from childhood? And, but then it also has given me, I don't know, things like quote memory or I don't know, like I don't have to look stuff up sometimes and, and people will be, and I think that, I don't know, maybe I'm sort of part of the last um, set of people to have had to do that. I'm like, I'm old enough to remember so many of the things that we're talking about here. And I don't just remember them. Like I remember living with them and, you know, not, not getting to reach for my phone, but actually being the person who would, I don't know, file through, like read the whole, the like the Washington Post style section and like learn about celebrities that way. Mm-hmm. But what happens when everyone our age is 80 and nobody remembers the pre-internet world and like, what will those brains look like? What What is going to be lost then? You know, I think about it. I, I think about the phone thing all the time. I mean, I, I remember my phone number from childhood, 944-7091. And my best friend was 944-6327. I do not know my daughter's phone number. I, I could not tell you her number if you put a gun to my head. Like, I just simply, I've never known it. And I probably never will know it. And I think that we are not habituating our brains to retain that kind of information anymore. Like, I have a hard time, even if I look at a phone number in an email, for example, and it's not done in a format that I can just click on it to immediately go to the phone. I find I have to like toggle back and forth from my phone to the email to like just grapple with the 10 digit sequence of numbers, which is pathetic. It's oh, pathetic. that's totally true. <laughs> you know, it's too. like I've lost that skill of just like entering 10 digits into my brain and being able to retain it for more than three seconds. It's gone. And I think about like, well, when will we as human beings adjust? I think it it takes a while for our brains and our bodies to catch up. I mean, if you look at things like the obesity, you know, epidemic in this country, it's like we still haven't, our bodies have not caught up with processed food yet. And we've had them for decades. We've had that food for decades. I think it's going to be a long time before our, you know, we evolve to the point where we can handle like the amount of food and the kinds of food that we're eating. And I sort of feel like, um, you know, the internet is is in many ways like a lot of potato chips that we're downing all day long and we haven't yet figured out. Like, how do you deal emotionally with, like, going onto Facebook, say, and finding out, like, oh, my God, that girl that I knew from high school died. She just died. And every look at all these people from high school. They're all posting these memorials like, oh, my God, I just got a slack from my boss. I just got a slack from my boss. And it says I'm 10 minutes late to this meeting. And then like, oh, wait, but wait, I was just in the middle of this long article about Belarus. And I just like I I was so caught up in the refugee. And it's like that's a lot of different kinds of information to absorb simultaneously. And I feel like we we just all have kind of um, whiplash all day long. And at the end of the day, you're like, I don't even remember what happened an hour ago, let alone at 9 a.m. It's like we can't catch up with it. Who are we talking to again? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What happened? What day is this? We're going to sign off here. We have really had a great time talking to you. It's so nice for you to come back. Um, And we're going to remind our listeners uh, whether or not you can remember the world before the Internet. You should definitely go and pick up a copy of Pamela Paul's 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. Pamela, thanks for joining us. I had so much fun talking to both of you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Now we're thrilled to be joined by Cecilia Kong. 
Cecilia's latest book, which she co-authored with Shira Frankel, is An Ugly Truth Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination. Cecilia covers technology and regulatory policy for The New York Times, and she's based in Washington, D.C. Before joining the paper in 2015, she reported on technology and business for The Washington Post for 10 years. Her co-writer, Shira Frankel, covers cybersecurity from San Francisco for The New York Times, and previously she spent over a decade in the Middle East as a foreign correspondent, reporting for BuzzFeed, NPR, The Times of London, and McClatchy. Both Shira and Cecilia were a part of a team of investigative journalists recognized in 2019 as finalists for the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting. The team has also won the George Polk Award for National Reporting and the Gerald Loeb Award for Investigative Reporting. Cecilia, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Cecilia, I'm so, this is, I feel like this topic is always, it's always timely, but it feels especially juicy right now, in part because whistleblower Francis Haugen recently released tens of thousands of pages of internal Facebook documents. And among other issues, these documents indicate that Facebook has knowingly perpetuated misinformation and harmed the mental health of teenagers on Instagram, just in the interest of profit. And they also show how the company helped fuel the January 6th insurrection. And your book, An Ugly Truth, details Facebook's long history of company over country, which was, as you've written, one of Zuckerberg's early mantras. And can you talk a little bit about that history? Yeah, I think you really have to go back to the beginning to understand why Facebook is at where it is today. And a lot of that has to do with the ambitions of its leaders and also the business model that they built, that they created. This expression, company over country, came from um, the earlier days when Mark Zuckerberg would end his meetings with staff saying company over country, um, according to one of his speechwriters, Kate Lossie, who also wrote a book um, we talked to. What he meant by that was that he understood he was building something so powerful and so big and so new that in many ways it would be almost a government of its own. It would be as impactful and as as powerful um, as like a nation state. And his message really there was to say, look, we are competitive. We want to be big. We want to have impact with the capital I in this world. So this is company first, everybody. Let's all get in it. We're all in. So that was his message. And I think that that message, you know, has had a lot of resonance in different ways, perhaps in ways he didn't expect um, today. But I think there's been a lot of a lot of the tone was set in the very beginning with that kind of ambition. In some ways, it's sort of like he could have had his mantra be, uh, the company is the country, right? <laughs> you know. Anyway, since the Wall Street Journal first published the Facebook files in early September, practically every major news outlet has analyzed and reported on those documents, including you for the New York Times. Uh, as a journalist who's been covering Facebook for over 15 years now, can you describe what your initial a- reaction was to the release of these documents and what you predict their long-term impact will be? I was surprised on the one hand by just how comprehensive and how much Francis Haugen had um, retrieved with these tens of thousands of pages of documents that showed um, themes and showed um, and illustrated issues that were not surprising. And let me explain that. I think a lot of what was revealed in these documents that she took from Facebook supported, first of all, so much of our reporting in our book um, and the underlying message being that the company has made growth its number one priority and that there has been a pattern within the company where employees um, in many different parts of the country are continuously sounding alarm bells and warnings of um, warning of problems that exist as it as, as pertaining to misinformation to hate speech 
to data privacy problems and that message just not being heard enough by the top leaders and the top leaders not doing enough to change and to address these these warnings and these problems. So um, I think that the the leaks, the revelations have been incredibly impactful and in that it provided such a comprehensive view of just how the company works from the inside and how the leadership of Facebook, especially Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO, is calling a lot of the shots and not putting, in some cases, security first um, over this drive for growth. Um, you know, I think the impact of this is to be determined, really is TBD, because in the moment a few weeks ago when Francis Haugen, the whistleblower, was testifying before the Senate, it seemed like things were really going to change. It seemed like that was just like the worst existential crisis moment for Facebook. And we had lawmakers sort of vociferously waving their hands saying, this is a big tobacco moment for Facebook and big tech and things are going to really change. And have you heard a lot since? I mean, I, I'm not going to say that things won't change and there won't be some sort of momentum for legislative action. But I do think that it's the the questions on what to do next and to hold Facebook accountable are hard. They're thorny and they haven't changed in the last few years. And I think lawmakers are really grappling with what to do. Um, so the impact really is to be determined. I wonder if I'm thinking, I mean, maybe I'm thinking about this too simplistically, but I'm just so curious, like, as a writer, Whitney and I are both former journalists, and thinking about what is the moment when you, who have been covering Facebook for 15 years, are kind of like, this is the moment that I have to stop writing. Because I know that when I have a book yanked away from me, it must be so much harder for you, because every second there's breaking news, and then simultaneously there's this fascinating coverage problem, which you've just referenced, right, that the problem doesn't change also kind of for 15 years? I don't know, is that is that fair? And how do you as a writer contend with this? Yeah, I totally, you, you nailed the, you know, you nailed this on the head. I, for us, one of the biggest challenges among the many challenges we had in reporting and writing this book was knowing when to stop. Because we were covering the story, we were writing this and figuring out what the book would be in real time. You know, we actually went through several versions of what we thought our core arguments would be. Before we thought, you know, early on, we thought this is going to be a book about domination and antitrust and data privacy. And then we realized, oh, no, this is really shifted toward like speech and misinformation. Then we realized, oh, my goodness, it's actually all of these things. So what's the underlying problem? Like, is there sort of like a systemic underlying problem of Facebook? And that was a good animating question because that got us to our final, <laughs> what we finally concluded would be the theme, which is to look at how the business model, the technology has led and has sort of sparked a lot of these problems. And the priority of growth has been sort of the underlying problem within the company. So with that in mind, once we figured out what the sort of bedrock problems were of Facebook and what our bedrock arguments would be, then we realized it doesn't really matter when we stop because they'll all kind of come back to this, this foundational issue that we're exploring, which is, you know, the business model. So that made it a little bit easier and made us feel like, okay, no matter what happens next, we feel like this will still have like long life, our central arguments, because that is the core problem. I mean, you say the problem is growth, right? But when I listen to stock shows, that's the thing that's good about Facebook, right? The reason that Facebook is, is going to be able to weather these problems, I think, is because if you listen to investors and you listen to Wall Street, they're like, look, it's growing. And we think that this stuff, regular story stuff will, will blow over and you should invest there. 
people still like the minute that this story drops, the coverage on a place like CNBC is totally different than it is in regular in, in you know in media that I you know normally read like the Times, right? And so you'll hear people on like Fast Money, which is a show that is on every night, say like, "Yeah, this has happened before. Nothing will change. Their PE ratio is twenty five. It's a good investment. You should buy it." Yeah, I mean, I. I think problem is in the eye of the beholder, right? Like what a problem is. Like if you're an investor, you see no problems in the the actual returns you're getting from the share price. If you're concerned about societal problems and if you're concerned about genocide in Myanmar, if you're concerned about election, you know, misinformation and and health misinformation around the COVID vaccines, then that's a different sort of view on what the problem is. So there is absolutely, and I think you're pointing to something that's really important, which is there's a really big disconnect or a delta, I should say, with the the scrutiny of the company and the reputational damage of the company given just like story after story. And now five years running um, revelations of just really systemic problems within the company with, in terms of these bigger societal problems, and then this business that's just operating fantastically and super successful. So, I mean, that's this crazy disconnect that happens right now. You see shareholders who say internally, who are activist shareholders who are trying to change things, but they have no power. Mark Zuckerberg has really all the power on the stock side. So, I mean, the reason why I think this delta is particularly important is that there's not a lot of incentive for the company to change dramatically a business model that is so successful. And so this delta is, you know, so the the question is what will incentivize the company to truly put like much more into security and safety? They do put a lot in, but not nearly enough given its scale. Stock price loss would do it or loss of users. I think I just think that's the only thing. I mean, the only the only thing that's interesting from stock analysts is that you'll say, well, if they get listed as an ESG, as, as they, if they're no longer be able, able to be included in ESG investing as a like an oil and gas company, but they're like the, the oil and gas equivalent of like the social political world, like they're toxic, then that might change things. I think that people forget that the environmental movement, like to your point about oil and gas, as well as like tobacco, uh, a lot of these, a lot of the consumer changes that occurred were slow and over many years, but they did change. And people did change their habits when it came to, you know, recycling, eating and being less wasteful, thinking about the environment, certainly when it came to health related to cigarettes. So it's consumer behavior is the big existential threat for sure, for a company like Facebook. But so far, there's not, um, a, the, the movement is there, actually. We're seeing younger people leave Facebook and Instagram, for sure, which is definitely keeping Mark Zuckerberg up at night. But it's it'll be slow. And that's why I think they're going headlong and so fast into new things like metaverse. This is a technical question. But I mean, you know, we're interested in the, the, those parts of reporting. Like, you have these scenes that, you know, are, are meetings that are happening with all all these people, right? So, how do you go about dramatizing a meeting like that? Do you need two different sources that say that the meeting happened and that these things were said? How do you fact check all that stuff? And how do you, I know that Times is really good at fact checking and I've written for them before myself, but without divulging any like important, you know, source material, you know, like how does that work when you're recreating these scenes? Great question. First of all, we had a fact checker. We had um, two fact checkers that whom we hired to work with somebody appointed at Facebook 
to just receive the fact checks from us. So there was there right. was a very professional process that took about three months, more than three months, actually. So there was we presented them with just so many data points, hundreds of data points that we wanted to vet through and just like give them a chance to respond to. Um, some were really like basic facts, like, you know, dates and stuff like that. But others were like bigger scenes and like, you know, what what many people in a room gathered was the intention of somebody. And then we give them, we wanted to give Facebook the chance to really respond to these things. So this sort of no surprises process is something that we do at the Times. And it's something that we did with this book as well. So we felt very, very good about the fact checking process. When it comes to each of these scenes, none of those scenes are single source. There's no way we would do that. That's just like, we can't, you know, Um, but I don't want to get too much into detail because I think some scenes, as you can imagine, there are a different number of people who might be knowledgeable about a particular scene. So it's, you know, I don't want to say too much about this, but right. nothing is single source. Most things are multiply sourced. And I don't mean just like two, you know, people. So it's, it's really, and it's, and it's what we do is we try not to be leading also is and say, you know, you know, I heard that, you know, Zuckerberg was wearing a green sweater in this meeting. We want to say like, you know, this is a small example, but, like, what was he wearing? So that we have three people who will say, like, oh, you know, he was wearing a green sweater. So we don't want right. to be, like, leading and say, like, we heard that the sweater had buttons. Is that right? And then, yeah, I think that's right. I, you know, that kind of a thing. You know, we want to just make sure that it's we're not leading and that we're getting fresh information. We don't want to get too much into anyone's head unless we have we feel very, very confident about the retelling of this of a person's thoughts and emotions directly from that person to other people or that that person told us. So I don't hope that makes sense. So we don't want to, you know, again, I'm, I'm speaking somewhat in code because we have to be careful, but um, that's not our business to, you know, if we, if we had not heard um, many people say, well, so-and-so said that he would, he felt completely, you know, um, frustrated and angry, then, you know, then that's, then we have a good sense that, you know, that person felt pretty frustrated and angry. And then we gave, we give them a chance to respond. Facebook at the end is saying, we understand that this person felt very frustrated and angry. Does that sound right? So you can imagine that everything in the book has been vetted in that way. That's so helpful. And Asugi and I know how this works, but I feel like one of the problems with like the way that people talk about journalism these days is that people don't actually know what, fact-checking looks like at a level that you're doing, right? For for any story. I mean, people just don't understand the journalistic process. So that was really wonderful. Thank you very much. So, Cecilia, the further I make it into the book, the more Zuckerberg seems like he's evolving from smart asshole to authoritarian overlord. And we see this in the security measures we just discussed and also in his handling of anything beyond himself and his company. And when it comes to competition, he either just annihilates other companies or acquires them. Uh, And when it comes to genocide in Myanmar and hate speech, he allows these issues to worsen in support of growth. And he's always been a ruthless business person. But I think the last six years have marked a huge shift, not just in the public's trust of Facebook, but it seems like also in company morale, um, that kind of flood of people coming forward that you mentioned. And even some of his longtime friends and founding members have turned their backs on him in recent years. I wonder if you could discuss that development a little bit or, or whatever the opposite of development is as a leader. Yeah, I mean, I think Mark Zuckerberg has been remarkably consistent. You know, um, I think the very competitive 
very confident person who you see today is the same person who started Facebook in 2004. All the same ingredients were there. We also see somebody who has not lived a lot of life, frankly, from, you know, going from Dobbs Ferry, his family home, to Exeter, to Harvard, to Silicon Valley and getting funded right away and sticking with this one company. That's, that's, he's had one job. And he has not had a lot of experience. And the reason why I mentioned this is that um, he leads a website that reaches more than 3 billion people around the world. And I think that, you know, you mentioned, Sugi, the Myanmar and India and some of these other countries where, um, in Ethiopia, where we're seeing a complete, just such a mismatch of their ambition to be in those countries with the amount of security that they put into um, making sure that the users in those countries are protected. It's just so little compared to how much they want to be in these countries and how many people adopt the, the service. That So that it matters that the leader of Facebook does not understand life outside in any ways the worlds that he's lived in. He, I think it's been very, very hard for him to see people like Chris Hughes, one of his co-founders and Harvard classmates, classmates Harvard roommate, in fact, become one of the most... Um, vocal critics of Facebook. In fact, saying that he believes Facebook should be um, broken up. And we have a scene in the book where where when Chris Hughes' op-ed in the New York Times calling for the breakup of Facebook, his first release, this was around May of 2019, Zuckerberg was in Paris. Um, he had a meeting with Macron um, and he was writing around and he first heard about it. And we we had, you know, in our reporting, we learned that he was incredibly mad and frustrated because of Chris Hughes's arguments, but mostly because it was a friend and somebody who was there in the beginning who Zuckerberg felt betrayed him, you know, felt that it was like a real um, sort of stabbing of the bat in the back kind of moment. Um, and loyalty matters to Mark Zuckerberg and to Sheryl Sandberg and to a lot of other people there. People stay there much longer than arguably they should, according to many employees, because Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg are loyal to them. Um, they themselves are loyal to each other. Um, so that matters. So when, when people do turn and they become public and vocal um, critics of the company, Zuckerberg not only finds that frustrating, I think he finds that like a personal betrayal. I think this is a great point uh, for us to hear from the book directly, if you, if you would be willing to read a passage for us. Great. This chapter is called The Coalition of the Willing. Zuckerberg was fuming as he rode through the streets of Paris in a chauffeured black Mercedes V-Class MVP. He furiously scanned an article on his phone. The afternoon rain showers had just let up and the walkways along the Seine were teeming with pedestrians. He was in France to meet Prime Minister Emmanuel Macron to discuss a surge in violence and hate speech on Facebook. It was the last leg of a global diplomatic offensive to defend the platform and to try to influence regulations under consideration in several nations. In the past five weeks, he had talked with government leaders in Ireland, Germany, and New Zealand. Zuckerberg had aged visibly over the past year. His face was thinner, accentuated by his close-cropped haircut, the fine lines circled his red-rimmed eyes. His visit with Macron was the last hurdle to clear before he took a break from a grueling year of upheaval inside and outside of the company. He and Priscilla would celebrate Mother's Day at the Louvre before heading to Greece, 
for their seven year their seven year wedding anniversary. But an op-ed published in the New York Times had interrupted his plans. Chris Hughes, Zuckerberg's Harvard roommate and a co-founder of Facebook, had delivered a scathing 5,000-word rebuke of the company they had created together in their dorm room 15 years earlier. In the piece, Hughes talked about their idealism in starting Facebook. But what they created, he wrote, had evolved into something much darker. The social network had become a dangerous monopoly with 80% of the world's social networking revenue and a bottomless appetite for personal data. It is time to break up Facebook, he said. The core problem was Zuckerberg, Hughes asserted. He made the big decisions and held the majority stake in the company voting shares. Mark was Facebook and Facebook was Mark. And as long as he remained in charge, the only solution for the company's many problems was for the government to intervene and break the company into pieces. I'm angry that his focus on growth led him to sacrifice security and civility for clicks. I'm disappointed in myself and the early Facebook team for not thinking more about how the newsfeed algorithm would, would change our culture, influence elections, and empower nationalist leaders, Hughes concluded in the op-ed. The government must hold Mark accountable. Zuckerberg's expression hardened as he scrolled through the piece. He kept his gaze fixed on the phone, not uttering a word. After several minutes of silence, he looked up solemnly with unblinking eyes. He told his aides he felt stabbed in the back. And then he kicked into commander mode. How, he demanded, had the op-ed slipped through Facebook's army of PR staffers responsible for sniffing out negative articles? Whom had, had Hughes consulted in researching his critique? And what did he hope to achieve? Within the hour, Facebook's PR team went on the offensive. Hughes hadn't been employed at Facebook for a decade, they told reporters. He didn't know how the company worked anymore. They questioned his motives and criticized the Times' decision to publish a piece without giving Zuckerberg a chance to defend the company and himself. Chris wants to get into politics, a Facebook flack informed a New York Times journalist. But Hughes wasn't acting alone. He had joined a growing number of early Facebook executives, including former president Sean Parker, who were speaking out, admonishing the social network they had helped build and that had brought them individual wealth. He was also bringing energy into a movement in Washington to dismantle the social media giant. Political leaders, academics, and consumer activists were calling for the government to break off WhatsApp and Instagram, the fastest growing services owned by Facebook. Two months earlier, Democratic presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren had vowed to break up Facebook and other tech giants if elected. Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden followed suit, promising tough scrutiny of Facebook, Google, and Amazon in their campaigns. Even President Trump, who used Facebook more effectively than any candidate in his presidential campaign, warned that the internet companies had too much power. The meeting with Macron was tough, as expected, yet productive from the perspective of the long game, building a relationship with the French leader that could boost Facebook's reputation across Europe. Still, Zuckerberg continued to steam over Hughes's betrayal. Two days later, when a reporter for Francis Two Television News asked for his reaction to the op-ed, he publicly addressed it for the first time. It was a gray afternoon. Rain streamed down the windows of the television station where Zuckerberg sat for the interview. His eyebrows furrowed as he looked toward the floor. Well, when I read what I wrote, my main reaction was that what he was proposing that we do isn't going to do anything to help solve those issues, 
he said, his voice rising slightly. He refused to refer to Hughes by name. He didn't address any of the arguments raised by Hughes, such as the abuse of consumer privacy, the threat of disinformation to democracy, and Zuckerberg's too powerful control. Instead, he warned of an intervention to dismantle Facebook's power. If what you care about is democracy and elections, then you want a company like us to be able to invest billions of dollars a year, like we are, in building really advanced tools to fight election interference. A breakup would only make things worse, he explained. Thank you very much. We're going to ask you if Zuckerberg's right, if a breakup would make things worse. But first, I wanted the, that passage reminded me of something. I once wrote about Google, who was putting up a Google fiber network in Kansas City, where I live. So in a very small way, I mean, I'm not a big time tech reporter like you, uh, but but Google, their flacks were ruthless. And, you know, like if I was going to go on the radio in Washington, they would call up the station and say, this guy's just a novelist. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You're going to be in terrible trouble if you speak with him, you know, like. And the way that the, the PR machines of these companies work, I wondered if you've ever experienced that, you know, the, the way that they were coming back at Hughes immediately after like developing a narrative about what's, why this is selfish and it's not, you know, like how did people react to your reporting in the past and this book? Yeah, I mean, they publicly, um, they didn't, they haven't even had to whisper behind the scenes. They've public, publicly kind of um, uh, refuted um, the book. They've, they criticize it and Facebook, um, the PR um, staff, as well as executives. And they say that they say a lot of the same things they say about like the whistleblower, as well as most coverage about Facebook, that this is all cherry picking and that, that we chose certain narratives, that kind of a thing. Um, so kind of the response you'd expect, I don't, I, I think it's hard for them to criticize Shira and myself because I don't know, because we've been doing it for so long. It's, you know, I, I I hope to think that our reputations stand for, you know, stand on their own. So, but we understand that there's some whispering behind the scenes a bit as well. But I try not to think about it because I don't think people listen to them, you know? So I don't, if it was like effectual, then that would be problematic. But I, I think a lot of journalists are just so interested in finding out the truth and they're, they've been so incredibly um, generous and, you know, to us. And we're grateful to that for that. So is Zuckerberg right? Would it help to, would, would a breakup of Facebook make things worse? I think it's a really intriguing question. I, I don't think, um, there are some very smart people who are experts in antitrust who would say that, yes, it would slow down the, the growth of the company. And that might be the, the primary objective, but unless you address the fact that the business model is the core problem, then you could end up, let's just say if it broke up into three companies along the divided along its apps, Instagram, Facebook, and WhatsApp, then you might have three companies with the same problem, but the, still with the same problem. So what does that do? Um, there's also the argument that they wouldn't have the resources um, as three separate companies to fix things like disinformation. Um, I think those are intriguing arguments. I think that if you ask a lot of startups that try to compete, they would say that um, there's just no way to break in at this point because the network effects have been so strong for Facebook and they dominate so much. So from my understanding, and I've just I've been covering regulation and antitrust for so long, what I think most people in Washington believe to be true today is that it has to be a combination of antitrust and regulation that will really curtail the power of the most dominant platforms, especially Facebook. 
So Facebook has re- recently rebanded as Meta, and I think it's it's obvious that at least one of the hopes here is that this will divert people's attention. But Facebook did make a large investment in VR back in 2014. You know, they purchased the Oculus VR headset, and they already had investments in similar technologies even before that. So I'm curious about your interpretation of this meta rebranding. Facebook has worked not only on VR and AR for quite some time, they've thought of like, they they sort of cooked up this idea of the metaverse like well, well before their announcement a couple of weeks ago about this rebranding. So they've been working on metaverse, this idea of an immersive world that combines real life with virtual reality and augmented reality for about more than more than a year now. And they want to own the whole platform. They want to you know own the devices that get you into the world. They want to own the apps that are you know that are used to for how we communicate and interact with each other on this world. And they want to own essentially the, the, the infrastructure, the platform itself. Um, incredibly ambitious. Um, it's hard for me to get super excited about Metaverse because um, I feel like I've seen it with Roblox and like, you know, a lot of other, you know, technologies for quite some time. You know, the things that I've seen, you know, like sort of that one hour feature film felt very familiar to me. Um, but I think you, one should not underestimate Facebook because they have so many resources, they have so much cash. And the fact that Apple wants to get into this too, and Microsoft and so many other companies says that this is, you know, this is a place where they all feel like there could be real money going forward. Um, The rebranding, so so yes, of course, they've been working on this for a while, but they also chose to announce the rebranding and the focus on this future-oriented strategy at probably the best time for them to try to shift the conversation. So both can be true, that they're sincere about this metaverse thing and they're trying to shift the conversation, the narrative away from all the problems and more toward the future. Um, I think it's going to be really hard. Like I still don't call Facebook meta, like the, the umbrella company. I still refer to them at Facebook. I think it'll be hard for people to to shift in that way. I also think it's, you know, TPD, like whether it's a a real thing that people get super excited about, you know, I mean, do we call Google alphabet? We still call it Google. We call the company Google. So in a way, it doesn't really matter that it's called meta now. The thing that you talk about, about owning the whole system, right? That's the thing when I was writing about, about Google building Google fiber and Kansas City, I mean, the danger for me that I feel like is like, we were talking about things that should really be public infrastructure and that are public spaces, and that we're increasingly privatizing public spaces. And when you privatize, what you do is you lose control over them. And so in your book, which is excellent, and we shows, well, if you give up this amount of control of your public space and conversation to a private company, you run the risk of it being run by somebody like Mark Zuckerberg that is trying to prioritize growth over everything else. You can't control, you can't vote out Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, it's not a democracy, that's for sure. Um, So in addition to that, He's not only prioritizing the business growth, but he's he's making some really big policy calls. He's creating the rules and the the laws and the 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 governance of of the world that he he leads, which is Facebook um, and Instagram and WhatsApp. Um, and I think the most the best illustration of why that can be problematic, and in the view of many people, has been problematic, is his shifting views on speech. And we've seen kind of like, we're we're almost seeing him grow up in front of our eyes and like maturing 
in front of our eyes and like like vacillating with his ideas of what speech should be. So he started off with this like real maximal free expression position, like very libertarian, where he thought more speech will conquer bad speech. So I'm going to let politicians lie because you know what? The public's going to fact check politicians. Then he realized, oh, crap. Well, if Donald Trump's, Trump is going to like talk about like, you know, um, UV lighting is secure to COVID, that might be kind of dangerous, you know? And then he kind of like backpedals a little bit. And, you know, that and, me, and at first he says, I, I'm going to let all Holocaust denial exist. Like this anti-Semitic, you know, semi-Semitic um, content will be in the conspiracies around like the Holocaust not happening, not have had happened, um, will be debunked by the many people on Facebook who will say like, no, that's not true. No, it turns out that actually the far right, like Nazis, like are being listened to by other far right Nazis, you know, and they're amplifying each other. And I think he's learning. So then he shifted on that policy too. So I think what we're seeing is like, there is, I think that under the reason why I mentioned all this is absolutely, this is in some many ways, Facebook is, is, is as powerful as a nation state. And Mark Zuckerberg has said that himself, but the difference is, is that there's much more of a system of checks and balances within governments, especially in democracies, and not one leader with so much power. And that really surprises in our, our reporting was to see just how much he actually exercises his power. We've known for a while. We've known, we have all known that he has 54% of voting shares, and that makes him very powerful and in some ways uniquely powerful compared to most CEOs. But he actually he actually uses that power a lot. And that's that was really surprising to, for us to see and that other executives don't hold him to account in the way that we thought they would. Cecilia, it's been so great to have you join us today, get all of this insight on a topic that's very much front of mind for me. Um, listeners, don't miss Shira Frankel and Cecilia Kong's new book, An Ugly Truth, which is out now. Uh, and thanks so much for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these places, you'll find links to our LitHub Radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on LitHub's virtual book channel and in our YouTube channel. Our website, with our full video and audio archive and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. The show is produced by Ann Knigendorf, and we'd also like to thank our student intern producer, Hayden Baker. Until next time, happy reading and writing from Fiction Nonfiction. Fiction Nonfiction.